Hello, Julie. Hi, Ryan. Here we are for another episode of Environment Heroes. Well, this is really fun. We interviewed the guy that built your house. I know. I know. It's um, yeah, pretty cool. So I met Dan about, gosh, six years ago now. Um, I was living overseas at the time and we did a knockdown rebuild, as you do in Canberra, and um, we interviewed a couple of builders and Dan was the one that I just went, yep, I can work with Dan because I knew I would be the one who'd be talking <laughs> on the phone a lot as the build happened because um, we built remotely. So we built the whole thing through FaceTime and wow. Zoom calls. It was, yeah, it was pretty It was pretty intense. We didn't see the house and I didn't meet Dan until the day we arrived home and the house was completely finished. Incredible. And so we drove up to the house. You and, must have um, really trusted him. Really did, really yeah. did. But I remember looking at him and looking at me going, so this is the house. And he was so nervous and I was so nervous. <laughs> I was like, oh, are we going to like it? Are we going to like it? And it was it was amazing. It yep. was like, it was just amazing. Amazing. Because Dan is Mr. Sustainability of building. That's right. Dan, the builder, thinks about sustainability in every angle as far as I could tell yeah. what he's doing, um, which is unique um, and very challenging as we'll learn in the podcast because – it's not been done that way in the past and it's not set up that way even now. Yeah, yeah. You'd think, um, yeah, I mean, doing the research for the questions, like, and obviously when we were doing research for our building, for our house, we knew that um, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with materials and with how you build, what you build with, um, all of that. You have to think about, like, the materials you're using, like, are you using concrete, are you using wood, are you using tiles, are you using brick? Like, how does it all fit together? And having Dan help out and kind of guide the process so we could build the most, back then, the most sustainable house we could possibly build um, was awesome. And even, I mean, this is the other thing too, technology is just changing so fast. So there's some things in our house, and our house is only, what, five years old. There's things we do differently now because the technology has changed. When we asked him what's the most important thing about building a sustainable house, it was all aspect. Yeah, all orientation, north, north orientation, facing. So simple, so easy to forget. But that is the crux of it all for anyone thinking about building a house out So there. just to clarify, our building does face north. I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and we have so many windows. So our house was known in the suburb where we built. Everyone everyone knows our house because they're like, oh, that's the house where you can just look in and <laughs> see what you're doing because we also have no curtains. So no curtains. Nothing to hide here, eh, Julie? Nothing to hide. <laughs> um, but I must say, like when we first moved in, we had no garden out the front, like we just planted. And the whole idea was that the garden would grow up mm -hmm. and totally provide the privacy. And it has, like our garden is incredible out the front and yep. you can't really see in now. But it's all north facing, both little areas of the house. It's like, it's incredible. We don't really need to heat or cool because it's all done via the sun and yeah. it's ace and so so simple huh? yeah but i think um dan is full of full of words of wisdom about building the construction industry yep. life like he's just got a lot to say made for a great episode um one of his environmental heroes isn't it classic australian country music singer so look out for that one yeah but um his company's called megaflora look him up look him up um good luck getting on their waiting list yeah <laughs> Enjoy our uh, conversation on the Environmental Heroes podcast with Dan Fitzpatrick. Local environment heroes Saving the trees and the bees And doing it daily Alright, so Dan, we've got Dan in the hot seat today I'm very excited and um, 
in case I didn't mention this in the intro, I'm going to mention it now. I've known Dan for a few years. Um, so yeah, Dan's just told me he built your house. That's right. <laughs> so there was sort of a vested interest in getting Dan to come on. Um, well, not really. It's more that I knew how amazing Dan was. Oh, and thank I went, you. We need to have Dan on. So Dan, hello. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for a great intro. <laughs> Uh, so we ask everyone the first question, a similar question, same question, which is, has there been a defining moment in your life where you knew something had to change now? Uh, I probably wasn't, I've always been a lover of nature, but I probably didn't realise we had a problem until I started my apprenticeship. And that was a little bit later on in life. I'd already done a uni degree um, in graphic design. Uh, it wasn't until I probably started my apprenticeship and I kind of got a sense of how much waste there was in the construction industry and um, Australia is probably not a great contributor to that waste in a per capita sense and volume compared to emerging countries so I really kind of got woken up to like if we're producing this much waste how's the rest of the world managing it like this must be epic so that was a big turning point of you know we have to do better um I was always kind of aware with my mentor, who was my mentor at the time, who was quite an alternative kind of guy anyway. Um, he kind of always instilled in me that it was kind of, it's better for one person to do small efforts than just think it's all too much as well. So I never really got overwhelmed of like, oh, I have to sort all this out. I just kind of took it on of what can I do in myself? And then, you know, there was probably a bit of momentum turning anyway, uh, so, yeah, didn't feel like overwhelming or oppressing, but it just, yeah, it also was, this is gigantuan. <laughs> it's a big problem. Um, and residential is not even a big issue compared to commercial. And now I've, I'm in a commercial space too now in a, as a business partner in a commercial building and it's just, it's, it's like, it's landfill, but it's quality stuff as well. That's the big thing for me. It's just like this all could be reused. It's just like it's more convenient to throw it away. So that was, yeah, quite frightening. Mm. So what's different in the way that you deal with your waste than others do? Uh, for waste alone, um, we separate all our rubbish and I always have. So, and it's not even hard. You know? So it's actually cheaper too. Like it's a little bit more labour cost and a little bit more planning, but like it's so much, um, it's actually so much cheaper because you can recycle it. It's not just la bulk landfills, the most expensive option because no one's sorting it. The, la the people that take your landfill know that it doesn't get sorted. It's harder to manage. Whereas if you set aside a bin for just masonry and then that gets collected, that's the cheapest option because they know they can recycle it straight away without processing. So that's kind of like, that was one of the first things that we started on, which you know, it wasn't a big step, and but not many people were doing it. And now, you know, I've got a little um, interest in an architecture firm. And when we're doing tenders, that's one of our requirements of like, tell us your sustainability practices. And, you know, if that doesn't come up as one of the builders, as the builders are saying, well, we separate rubbish, we're kind of like, well, you won't get the tender. Mm. So that's a small one. But like, yeah, it just goes to um, a whole range of things of sustainability measures around making sure you're using certified products that are properly certified. You know, they're audited, they have a stamp from a recognised body because, I mean, there's a lot of uh, certification that is like, is it certified? It, 
it says it's certified, but then it just says made in China. Mm. Like, how did you get a certified set of certificate on this? Like, it's yeah. just the the mileage alone <laughs> probably <laughs> takes that out of the equation. I don't know, and it's just it gets so convoluted. You know, we're doing a project at the moment that's on. Um, a woodland block, it's just been subdivided out of a bigger block that was mixed farmland, but this particular parcel of land was all woodland. Um, it's not high-value woodland because it's probably been cleared at one point before, but by the same token, it's kind of... We could have cleared that whole block if you buy tokens off the government. And it's just like, but what do the tokens do? Oh, that's we'll plant them out somewhere else. Well, how can I see these plants be planted like it just feels a bit yeah 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 if you're not doing direct action in some way even if it's small it feels a bit like greenwashing to me mm. so it's lots of different angles of your business you gotta yeah. look at every segment and see how to make it sustainable definitely and um i mean i see a lot in terms of more so architecture practices but there are some builders trying to say we're towards net zero but it just feels like okay, what does that mean when I know how hard it is for me to be truly net zero? Hmm. How hard is it? I don't think in construction, if you're not taking the piss, it'll happen really for a long, long time. Because and and it, why, why is that? Like what's the... Well, straight away, masonry products, concrete. Yeah. Concrete, like, you know, you have to use concrete. It's, it's got a low embodied energy if it's used right in the payoff of long term, of like its longevity. But the... <laughs> it's nowhere near net zero as a product. Like even if they're buying offsets, it's so far away. Mm. Like it's such an intense industry. You know, the, the amount of transport we use, it's just that's another one. It's just until we're starting to sort those kind of issues out and there's a real kind of sense of we're offsetting that because I, I don't think you're going to get the transport industry to something that's not producing carbon quickly. But if we're making the point that we're offsetting it, I just think having a real tangible offset that's auditable and real, that's probably a while off. So that's probably mm. the challenge really. I mean, if I build really sustainable houses that use low energy, there's a lot of products in them that aren't sustainable. Mm. It's like a, it, it's unavoidable in a way at the moment. Um, I know on the concrete front, Wholesome um, are doing a lot of interesting things um around the science of concrete and you know making it more lightweight so it's less dense you know if they can just get 10 percent in terms of reducing content of the concrete the mass of it that's a 10 percent straight straight away saving like that's hard to find in the process compared to the science and building technology that they might be able to come up with as an answer but i don't think anything's immediate like it won't probably meet anything 2030 in terms of construction so if you're not I mean, you can still aim for net zero, I guess, but you're saying it's quite challenging to get there. So what for you would be a sustainable building? I think the biggest thing for me um, is sustainability uh, in the building side comes from building quality. And when you build something of quality with high value, you're probably more inclined for it to be more resolved. So it's probably, if we think residentially, it's probably smaller. Um, and then you're putting more emphasis on buying quality fixtures, fittings, how the build quality of the build is. So that in an essence is probably lifting the quality of the architecture. And then when it's got a better 
quality of fixture and fitting and use of materials, it's going to last longer. If it's a higher value in architecture, it'll probably last outlast trends because, you know, even if it becomes iconic of a trend at the time, it gets to a stage where 30 to 40 year turnaround we want to keep those pieces as pieces of history. Yeah, well, you look at the 1950s houses. Yeah, well, like 50s and 60s houses that are kept how they were are quite rare now, you know, if they're not tinkered with. And they're so desirable. They're so desirable. People want that. And they don't mind that it was like 50s and 60s. You know, people might go into those houses and modernise a little bit in terms of, you know, the bathroom might need doing, but it's not like a knockdown. It's not like let's get rid of all these materials with all the embodied energy that just starting to pay off and we just flatten it. So that's kind of if you build some more iconic pieces and it doesn't have to be um, magazine-worthy architecture but something of higher value is a, a really key sustainability driver because it's kind of like future-proofing that, well, this will just be knocked down in 30 years and it's just like, well what we've put into this building wasn't sustainable in terms of product and then it was just going to landfill it again and use more non-sustainable products perhaps that we're just going to do it again. We just keep this cycle of, you know, this low-cost housing but it's not low-cost because you're doing it again. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's not low-cost when you think about the impact it's having on the environment. That's exactly right, yeah. Yeah. It's, It's the highest cost. Yeah. 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 What do you think about the fact that house sizes are going up in Australia? I was reading last night that um, the average new house built in Australia is huge. It's like increased I think by 2.9% from the year before and apparently the ACT builds the biggest houses in Australia. Yeah. I think the problem with the ACT is probably a matter of um, economics on like the people that we have here possibly. It's not getting offset. We don't have that much small density housing that is accommodating for lower socioeconomic groups and it's just a population thing but it's not a good trend. I mean Australia was already the leader in the biggest housing per person table in the world. It's been the leader for the last 15, 20 years minimum and a lot of that driver too is it's bigger but it's cheaper because size equals money. So again it it falls into that equation of it's less quality. So, um, yeah, I mean, people aren't as interested in kind of how do I utilise a space with smart uses around joinery or being clever with using spaces in two different ways as much as they are of tacking on another room that feels easy. Mm. Yeah, so, and it's kind of, again, it gets into that false prophecy of, oh, I can see that what from an architecture point of view, the architect might say, we can do you a smaller house but it's going to cost the same as your big house. A lot of people just think, but if I go to have to sell my big house, that's what I would be looking for when I sell. So I'll get a bigger resale. Mm. It's all those kind of factors that buy into that. I mean. So how do we shift that? How do we get It's a hard conversation. I mean, when we have design. Do you have have those conversations? Oh, definitely. You know, that's a lot of, our, our firm's quite small. So we do a lot of vetting around if clients aren't really interested in listening to us on, being more sensible around size, you're probably not the client for us because we're not going to deliver you a project we're passionate about. We don't want to deliver a McMansion really. Like we want to deliver something that's been cleverly thought out and it's just like, wow, we got everything we want but it was smaller than we needed. That's a better solution for us. Um, but there's a, there's a hard conversation where you say uh, 
on a house that's smaller, we want you to spend $150,000 on joinery rather than 60000 because the joinery is doing so much more. It's going to be a study nook. It's going to be a day bed. It's going to be part of the living room if you want to shut it down. It's doing this. It's doing that. It's not for everyone. They think that it's going to cost more, but it's like you've spent more on the joinery, but you haven't spent more on concrete and the wall and everything else because we got rid of a room. It's kind of – I don't think it's neutral yet. It is it is a little bit more of an investment, but I think when you live inside the house, it's more important that it feels solution-tailored for my living style. If you come to an architect, you come, I think, in some regards that you don't want something generic – so the more that you're willing to listen to the architect and get things more tailored at the end of the project, I think it gives you more pleasure out of the, at the house and living there because it feels like, oh, so many things were thought about, so many solutions were tailored to what I kind of asked in my brief. But, yeah, it's a hard conversation to have with a lot of people. And what normally happens is we have clients that we say, look, we can definitely, a four-bedroom house shouldn't be any bigger than 200 square metres. We can get a lot done in 200 square metres. But what always happens is this creep of going, well, while we're building, it would be nice to have a separate study. And then it would be nice to have like, if my parents come, which they never seem to now, but they might (laughs) come in this house, it'd be nice to have an ensuite on a bedroom. So that becomes a guest bedroom if we want to use it. And then... Uh, it'd be weird if that faces the kids' room if we needed privacy. So how can we work a hallway where it gets them a little bit more private? And then all of a sudden the house is at 260 square metres. Yeah. It's a hard it, – I mean, I think that's a human nature thing. It's just – and it feels like I don't want to lose efficiency in doing it once. I want to do it right. Yeah, it's always a difficult conversation. Yeah. You mentioned materials earlier on and like certified and non-certified materials. What – should people be looking for in a good quality material? Like what certifications, what kind of building Well, most material? timber, you'll, you'll have a certification from, the, from some kind of board that might be forestry. It might be a government board. Some have industries have their own kind of like body that looks after it. A lot of the plywood, a lot of the joinery materials, their certification is actually quite good. Um, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's FSSG or something else. It represents their industry body. Um, but that, like looking into those kind of things. And then, I mean, you would know yourself when you look at things. If you do a real quick Google, you can tell whether it's kind of, I think you get a sense of whether it's legit or it just feels like, oh, no, this is just they've created this themselves. It's kind of like the organic food stuff, you know, when one's a real one and one's just like, ah. Oh. I've never seen this one before. Where's this come from? (laughs) Yeah, it's just like, oh, one, we, it's kind of like Australian beef for McDonald's and it's like that's the company name, you know, (laughs) like it's just, yeah, yeah, I know it's not real, but it is, it's a really hard space to navigate for a casual observer. Yeah. It's hard for me. So, um, but what we have now more so, this doesn't really, this is a bit of a a gripe of mine too. A lot of the, plays in the industry like if you think of the brick manufacturers we only have two in australia really that are big players they don't talk to builders they want to talk to the specifier it's really interesting now that i have a building company and an interest in an architecture firm to see how much more they chase after the specifier i mean i can understand it because that's the person telling everyone what to use but builders are really shut out around being educated in what they can dictate as well um you know, when we had a big Australian 
the biggest Australian brick producer come in and talk to our architecture firm, the first thing they led off with was we had a kind of look at what you guys do. We can tell you kind of are interested in sustainability. Here's what we're doing moving forward in plans of 10 years, 20 years, what the brick industry is looking like. And they're a big enough player that I take that seriously. Yeah. You know, like if BHP come in or Fortescue or something like that, you know that they're probably so big it's legit in a way you may they might their targets might be a bit of, you know over the top but i think they are probably they're protecting their own business at this stage yeah so it but it's interesting that you would never hear that as a builder from a brick manufacturer it's like you ring up and you know you just order the materials you get no education in it i think there's a lot of lack of education coming from industry bodies around those kind of things as well they're They've done enough to like keep their head above the water at the moment, but they haven't gone above and beyond. Mm. Definitely not. So, it's like a similar story. The other word you mentioned that caught my ear was offsets, yeah. and um, it kind of sounded like maybe you don't have a whole lot of faith in the way that it's rolling out. Yeah, I definitely don't. Like from a planning point of view, I just know what we've gone through with this block in particular. Um, New South Wales is probably, you know, this is dipping into some. Um, politics as well I find under the the kind of the leadership that New South Wales has had in the last few years there's a very dangerous line being walked around planning rules and how they've basically done a lot of land clearing and how things are being offset and whether it's real Mm. you Mm. know because I know I know on the other side of the coin of talking about this project with other people that are kind of very more business operated, other builders that are bigger, they're just like, oh, yeah, that's just like you just buy some tokens. It probably never goes anywhere. You know, like I just get the sense that it's naive to think that it's real when you buy an offset that it actually goes into planning plans. And it's just kind of like this idea that you bulldoze 40 acres of scrub, yeah, right, even if it's not high value or even if it was once agricultural, well, it hasn't been for 70 years. So the the idea that you bulldoze that and they say that in Belgium will plant the equivalent trees, it's like you're not planting biodiversity though. No. Biodiversity doesn't come with saplings. Like that and takes a no long time. there's no guarantee that they'll grow. There's, no, there's, there's just yeah, nothing. There's, yeah. you, you might plant the trees but that doesn't bring in – like the insects aren't there with the sapling. It's like it's more holistic than that. Yeah. Mm. So that really annoys me when you see um, bigger companies as well with uh, this sprawl out to the edges. That's a planning issue as well. Like, And you're like, oh, yeah, but we bought credits for that. It's like, yeah, but you don't, you're not buying – you can't – buy back you know like a baby bird family like they don't come back with some saplings in the ground in a remote area that isn't got anything to do with this area Mm. that doesn't come back like I think that's a big trap that hasn't been explored really on a wider scale around that scheme yeah it's always seemed like a bit of a band-aid to me it's not really dealing with the problem at all it's not it's and if you have I've had people talk to me about it where that idea that you have to offset what you're about to clear if people are saying that it's of no consequence that you do that like it doesn't feel like a big deal it doesn't seem like it gets in the way it doesn't seem like if it's to dissuade or make it harder and people are just like it's like easy I can just sort that out I'll just buy them 
what what is it doing? Mm. It just feels like a revenue raising exercise in a way. Like, oh, we'll get them to buy the credits. That'll be some tax dollars. Mm. Mm. Like, yeah, I don't know. Um, you talked about earlier too, like the idea that um, you know, there's so many materials that are just <clears throat> when you knock down a house, there's all these materials that are left or they've just put in landfill or whatever. Yeah. Um, so the idea of reuse, you know, reusing the materials, and I know um, you could tell, talk to us about your house in Crace, yes. which um, is all pretty much all made out of reused materials, right? It is. I mean, there's some that you can't escape, like you need concrete for foundations and you need new windows really because a lot of the older windows aren't going to meet code for energy efficiency. Like I, I would think on a project like that, I collected materials for 10 years. I spent a lot of time making sure it would use a lot of reuse materials. But in the grand scheme of things, I think that house probably, if I was honest with myself, is probably 30% recycled materials. Like it's hard to get above that unless you want to start sacrificing building technology around. And that, that's an interesting point in itself. It's like, okay, I could use way more old materials, like I, ha- I could have a house full of old windows and things like that, but then how much energy am I using to be uh, comfortable? Yeah, yeah. Like to realistic, I, well, I could live in a, ju- in a jumper and pants all year, you know, but it's not like modern living, is it? So it's a trade-off in that straight away. But... Um, I think there's been an upswell in definitely custom homes. I see a lot of guys that are in custom homes now in Canberra, some that are a bit more mainstream. I was just at a shop yesterday and there was a huge, huge pile of timber there and they're like, oh, that's the the builder that's in question. Oh, they just demoed two houses and have that got all that timber there. And I said to the guy that has a joinery shop there, I was like, oh, how long have they been doing that? And he goes, they're just starting to do it. I was like, that's really good because, you know, they, these guys would probably knock down 12, 15 houses a year and now they're seeing a value in recycling heaps more stuff. And it's because of the how what it's worth and more architects are specifying it and timber shortages and it's, yeah. uh, it's a big thing across a lot of areas but it's good that there's an upsweep. If they, I kind of feel if those guys are doing it, a lot more people would be doing it. So that's a nice thing because... There's a lot of materials in knocking down a house that you can't use. Yeah. Um, so if we can salvage what's useful totally on every job, it's pretty viable to do so. Um, even if when I say like you knock down a house and you recycle the masonry and you're not recycling the brick to be used as a brick but it gets crushed down and gets used as paving, as um as base or, you know, garden paths or aggregate for something else like that's a good that's better than it just going in the ground next to rubbish and dirt mm, yeah totally uh julie's put a word in front of me here which i um, believe you might be able to explain which is sustainable maximalism two words what does yeah. that mean uh so i guess that's kind of it's a little bit of a trend i guess of bucking this idea of clean cleanliness and clean lines in architecture it's more an interior thing more than an exterior thing in architecture so that's this idea that we're going away from possibly like late 80s early 90s this idea that we get everything inside to a minimal palette you know this white clean box with hard surfaces and then we might dress it up so maximalism is like I want things around me that tell a story that feels like I'm a human that feels like it's got 
real provenance of it's not this just shiny new box that I have to keep pristine and it's in materials that aren't real because a lot of those things are like these perfect manicured materials. So um, having the maximalism has got two fronts. It's got having a lot of stuff in the interiors more than we're used to but normally to have that too you need things that have a history otherwise it just feels like stuff piled on stuff that doesn't really speak to anything so um my house at Crace is a little bit of an example of that i guess because there's a layering of a lot of things on show when people some people come they're like oh there's so many places to look i'm trying to work it all out <laughs> but it's not just looking for the sake of looking and just like oh man like it's like why is that there why is that there they're kind of kind of they get a sense of where's that beam from it looks like it's not new so and mm. you can talk, tell a story about it um what which, is this stuff give me some examples tell me a story. Oh, so in my house there <laughs> well in my house there all the steel beams are on show there's no hidden structure there's no wrapping of anything or hiding of anything so you've got a steel beam which was recycled i couldn't even tell you where that was recycled because i've got um a connection to a guy that does demos he's a pretty eclectic guy in himself he's been hoarding demolition materials for like 30 years on his property so it's just like i went out to gordon's it was like that beam that beam that beam will probably do talk to the engineer are they big enough so there's all those beams are exposed they're rusty they might have paint on them they might have measurements they've got like old brackets that i didn't bother cutting off like i don't care but on top of that the beams for the flooring there rather than buying new beams from the hardware store um they're all sourced from the golden sheep yards they've got all the paint on them they've got wear marks on them that's all exposed on top of that is the flooring that was used is all the old phillips squash courts so that was there some of the beams in the in the void were from the csiro when they demoed that again from that supplier a lot of this a lot of the trims and all my door furniture you know if you think of your architrave and skirting board around your doors and windows and the that's normally painted mine's all mixed recycled ash that came out of houses at Yarralumla houses um I don't think it came out of Julie's old house (laughs) I think that would have been too new I'd, I'd have that I'd have a lot from that house but it'd be out at the farm but yeah, so it's just like an eclectic mix of everything. Yep. You can't pinpoint Even though where we tried, pin- I'm feeling like I need to now say we tr- we did try and build really sustainably and use stuff. Yes. <laughs> like it's not like we like demolished our house and put a McMansion in. No, <laughs> well your house you was unusable. Your old house your old house was unusable. So yeah, so, I mean okay, the, thanks. there is a little bit of a problem now. with there's kind of like a bit of a problem too with some housing in that kind of post-war right up to early 80s um, with engineering. Um, and it's why old houses you see, you walk around the corner and you're like, oh, that's a nice crack going right down the whole side of my house. The engineering's not big enough. We didn't really understand Canberra soil types. We're on a clay bed that usually sits on a rock shelf at a depth. Around Mount Ainsley's really bad, which you're like on Mount Majura. It's like that whole band through there. So, yeah, there's a lot of problem with engineering and a lot of houses. You know, we did a house in Deakin that was a cool designed house, but it was unusable. It had to be knocked down. It was a double brick house, which means you don't salvage that much because it was rendered both sides. You salvaged the brick to be crushed, but you couldn't use the bricks. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, like some houses, you, you can't get around it. So the best thing is to do if you do knock it down, you don't put a McMansion or something pretty junk in its place. You design something of high value that's of high, high architectural merit. So hopefully it'll be around for 100 years. Which we did. Yeah, you did. <laughs> well, we yeah. had Dan working on it. Yeah, yeah, toot our own horn here. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about... Uh, oh, go please. Oh, I was just going to say, what about people who... Um, like if they have got an emotional attachment to their house and they don't want to knock it down, um, yeah. or you well, know they want to they want to retrofit. Like, what's yeah. the? Can you add you, on? You to can. Those like, it takes a lot them? of interest. In, I'll give you an example. Like the um, my business partner in the architecture side so just bought a monocrete, and so for people that don't know, monocrete was this system that was in the kind of like early sixties, late fifties, and it was a really a, a early precast at a tilt up concrete construction so the walls were concrete they were prefabbed it's quite quite an interesting system the problem with it is in Canberra is they're not feasible for the walls really thin it's concrete they're freezing cold in winter they're boiling hot in summer the footings were super lightweight which was good for them for being cheap but you can't retrofit anything to it because nothing's heavy duty enough you can't put a wall inside to run more electrical because then that wall's sitting in no man's land on something that's not strong enough to hold the weight of any they're really super difficult to retrofit but it can be done if you're willing to if you love that house it means something to you so we're looking at options around um Mark's place, which is in Narrabunda, and it's a uh, it's a monocrete. He mightn't be able to do something now, but he'll probably keep the house. Mm. It's really difficult, but we're thinking: do we offset these steel posts, and you almost build a cage around the outside of the house, and then have like a cladding on the outside that protects it, and you become like, you know, where your house is reverse brick veneer. It's like reverse monocrete. Wow. The monocrete stays inside as the material that's on show. You'd even maybe rough it up a bit more or like, you know, get it more back to a natural state, strip the paint off it or something. So it's like, oh, wow. When you, but on the outside, it might look like something totally different. I mean, you could almost make it look like a square box on the outside with steel going all over the top of it. It won't be cheap though. That's the problem. Yeah. But if you, I mean, we're interested in from an architecture point of view of doing something that you no one's done because it's difficult. So it's like there's an inherent challenge in there, but. It'd be nice if we could do it and it's proven because then it would give people that have, you know, a, a problem with knocking down and rebuilding an option around those types of houses because there's really none at the moment. Mm. Well, if we could boil it down into, like, say, top three things that if someone was thinking of building a house or even renovating or retrofitting as mm -hmm. it may be their current yep. house, I'm guessing that the, the architectural design seems to be a pretty important one yep. for you. What would be the top three things they can do to so try and be more sustainable? Yeah, so first, on if it's a new design, nothing beats orientation. Mm. It just – everything that you try and do after that from a technolo building technology is a Band-Aid. If you don't design to the orientation, yeah, like it, you'll spend money hand over fist just trying to make it up, but it just will never be as good anyway as just simply getting the orientation. And, you know, there's a lot of people that say, oh, but my block faces to the street or it's like faces the wrong way. Well, that just makes for more interesting architecture. You know, that just makes it more, the more challenging it is, the more interesting the result should be. So that should never dissuade someone from working to the orientation because it's really hard to beat. I mean, uh, if you think of 
a north side window that's sized correctly into the room could provide, you know, in winter, if we had a normal sized bedroom, to give you an example, and you had a north facing piece of glass that was 35% of the north facade, in winter with, a cor- with the correct shading for summer, that should cut down on about 75% of the heating cost of that room alone, right? But if you have a north wall and then you have a south side window, if we make that window a third of the size, it will take out 50% of the energy. Like a south side window will just, it's just, yeah, it's basically like having a window open. Yeah, right. So north. North, north. yeah. (laughs) All right, that's number one. What have we got for number two? So (laughs) number two is definitely something that would apply to retrofitting and that is that it's false economy to buy fixtures and fittings for your house that are cheaper because they'll need replacing. Mm. And we've got a lot to answer for ourselves as Australians. Um, Julie will be aware of this. I can't buy a really super high quality water tank pump. They're all pri- They're all designed. There's four brands. They're all around the same price. They all give you a two-year warranty. I can't go and buy a ten-year warranty pump. They don't exist in the market anymore because no one was buying them. Mm. But you know, buying a thousand-dollar pump every three years, you know, compared to a two-thousand-dollar pump for a ten-year warranty, what are we doing to ourselves? Like, yeah. And it, it extends across a lot of things. It looks like a lot more upfront. But, you know, when you think of taps and fixtures and fittings, we did this little bit of a thought experiment the other day. If we got all a lot of things to a 10-year and 15-year warranty in terms of toilets and taps mm. and all those, and these became like quite nice Italian designer items, on a $900,000 build, all those PCs, you know, Italian tiles instead of Chinese tiles. And that's not about Italian quality. I think it's more about the designer element of using a high quality tile means that you're less inclined to probably pull it up in 10 years because you've invested in it and it's nicer and it's better. And it doesn't matter if it's a bit of the time back then, it's starting Mm. to become a bit of a design icon. Um, That experiment on a $900,000 build added 25 grand. You know, it's not much. Like renovating a bathroom is 50 grand now. So, you know, and that's throughout the whole house. That's kitchen, that's buying better joinery hinges, that's buying better draw runners, that's everything on that is is adding up to about 25 grand. It's not a big expense. And it's a bit of a shame because when we start to get into a, a point with clients where we're trying to pull some value engineering levers, often it's just like, oh, look at the all the choices. Can we make them cheaper? And it's just like, how about you lose half a bedroom? Like that, that's paid for it. Yeah. You so know, quality, quality, quality. Is number two. And that, that applies to retrofitting too, because if you're going to buy a new hot water service, it is definitely worth buying a German built heat pump than another Chinese electric element heater that's a third of the price. But that might only have a five year warranty, whereas the heat pumps have a 25 year warranty. Mm. And they use a tenth of the electricity. So they'll probably pay for themselves anyway in 10 years in terms of electricity use. Mm -hmm. Like that's a big one. Yeah. Third one, um, I guess it's just probably the third one is to think about material sources and what type of materials you want to use. 
doesn't probably re- apply as, as much to retrofitting, but if you're just going to do a bathroom renovation or something like that, it's not a holistic green principle, but it's that better quality, you know, I'm using better materials. Maybe I can work out where my material's from. And leading on from the materials is makers. You know, it's that buy local kind of idea as well. Um, it's quite interesting with housing is we are generally using local makers as a builder, but it's just like, okay, we're using them, but what's their ethos around locals? Yep. You know, like are they just happy to go I'll, – I'll, I'll give you an example. I can get Colourbond cladding. It gets shipped from Queensland from a supplier and it's $1.70 a square metre cheaper, but it has to come from Queensland or I can get it made in Queanbeyan. Yes, the steel comes from Newcastle, but like trucking it from Queen, it's already been it's already come to Queanbeyan, but it's also come from Newcastle up to the Gold Coast. So mm. it's it's making it's making twice the trip to yeah. come from there for a dollar seventy. It's just like what's the point? Like, and and it's also how do I get it cheaper from Queensland? Mm. Yeah. And yeah. that's a, that's a really broad question too because. China's always going to be cheap, but what are the labor practices I'm supporting here? Yeah. You know, there's uh, look, I use stuff from China. There's uh, no, and it's not China bashing, but it's just kind of like it's a really holistic worldview of what you want to take towards. There's a lot of questions you can be asking the people that you're engaging. And, you know, it mightn't be having a go at them. Maybe they're not thinking about it. Hmm. You know, maybe they're starting to think, oh, I'm getting asked this from clients. That's really where you'll get the ball rolling on the bigger builders. Yeah. The greenfield estate builders will not make any changes until they have people that are coming to the display homes that start asking these questions. Until they have salespeople feeding back to, to head office. You know what? Heaps of people are asking us about like what's the embodied energy on stuff around transport. They're not going to make any changes. They're not going to care. Hmm. It'll be business as usual. But if they start thinking, oh, geez, this is like, this could be a, you know, even if you think altruistically of they're thinking, well, this will be a point of difference for us to secure more work. We don't really care. That's long term that will be better for people. Yeah. So one one quick question before I know we're going to get onto the hero questions soon, but are you actually seeing that? Like are you seeing more of your clients? and Definitely through the architecture public? firm. Asking like actually coming and yeah, saying we're, we we're getting clients from that and architects are quite good. It's a very big agenda of the institute mm. uh, to, you know, be sustainable. There's a big um, push around carbon neutrality and firms getting on board and we can do it easily for the firm as an operating practice but it's like it's so it goes so much further than yeah. what your operating costs are and how much a firm uses electricity and the transport yeah. costs because an architecture firm's not very energy intensive really there's computers like it's not compared to what they're putting out there in terms of the ongoing yeah, yeah so but the institute's really interested in that and i think most clients that would be going to an architect these days it would be one of the questions you know what's the sustainability practices why you know tell us why you think that you're meeting that part of my brief. Yeah. Cool. It's exciting. It is I think, exciting. Um, yeah. So as everything, the power is in the hands of the consumer, right, to ask the questions. And in a capitalist better. system it is, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We <laughs> if we're a communist advantage. and they decided to do it, we'd just be laughing. <laughs> <laughs> we'd have a lot of other problems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this conversation for a whole other podcast. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, so we're going to ask our five set hero questions now. Yeah. Um, the first one. Yeah, go for it. Uh, congratulations, Dan. You've just been elected president of the world. What's the first thing that you change? Taxation. How so? Well, I mean, it's not hard to know that taxation, well, wealth is moving. Wealth, and it always has been. And it's a, it's a curve that aligns with capitalist growth, basically. So, you know, if the wealth just keeps moving into more and more, and more to a smaller select group, you know, my thing is for the people that are truly wealthy and we only have probably a handful in Australia really on a world scale, the money that they have, they can't use. Hmm. So, you know, and for a large part of it, they're not going to give it up either. So you need a mechanism that forces them to give it up. Yeah, so a so, more equitable distribution. Yeah, well, taxation hopefully in diplomatic in, – in democracies means that it goes to the people that need it more, hopefully. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's 2030. Describe the world that you see around you. <laughs> well, in a way – I don't see us in Australia moving that much from what we have now in terms of policy settings around green. Um, depends on It depends on the next two election cycles in my mind, uh, but under the current policy makers, I don't think that would change much. The thing that I think will change is based on cycles of the climate I'd say we'd probably be in the grips of another pretty severe drought. And it's lovely that we've had two years of rain. I've got a property, you know, in 2019, it was our dream to move out there. We gave up on it, you know, like it was just so sad and it's lovely now, but it will come back. And this idea that it's a land of droughts and floods is just idiocy. Like it's not, It's just, it hasn't been, it's like it needs changing. So, yeah, unfortunately, I think 2030 would be the same. But what I do think in a market setting around construction, people that are genuinely um, innovators will be, have a bigger market share. Mm. So that's positive. If you, if you, you know, I'm part of the whole system that we're in, which is, you know, I run a business, I want to make sure I make money. Um, But I also know that if I'm genuine with, how I want my business to go towards more bespoke building. It's already been happening. You know, I'm at a point now where it's hard for me to grow because of a skill shortage, but there's so much work that's sought after because of the ethos I bring to a build. Mm. And there's all the builders that we try and engage through our architecture firm have a similar problem. They're like, we want to do really good quality building. We want to be leaders in, you know, we're willing to up, if, if someone comes in tomorrow and says to you, you have to pay more tax unless you get way more green in your, a lot of the builders that I know would be like, oh, I'll rise to the challenge. I'll do it. I won't, I won't be a moaner about it. I'm happy to do my lifting. And because they've got that mindset, they are very sought after and they will keep being at the front of the curve, I think. So that's a positive. Mm. Yeah. Who are your environmental heroes, Dan? Uh, I'll have some interesting ones for you. Um, Peter Andrews. I don't know if you know him. So Peter Andrews is natural sequence farming. He's a real bushy, he's a very cantankerous, controversial kind of character. Um, He's been around for a long time. 
he's kind of of you may have heard the movement of like slash weeds and you just keep slashing them until the proper grass grows. So that's like a rural kind of, he ran a property up in the Hunter and, you know, in some of the really severe droughts we had at the two, in the 2000s, his property was green. Mm. You know, like if you look at aerial shots and his big thing is riparian zones, bringing up erosion, lifting up, you know, if we, from land clearing from the pioneers, it feeds in a little bit to, Bruce Perrin's work around how the pioneering guys just wipe the land clean and we don't have much topsoil and there's a whole that's a whole science thing around it but yeah he's a natural sequence farmer so it's like we need to repair all the damage that erosion basically does on our farmland and yeah he's got some pretty controversial views that don't align with a lot of people so but he's a real trooper like I think he's a type of person that he's quite old now and he's been doing a long time and he's He's got somewhere with some people, but, you know, he hasn't in other fields. I feel like if if um, Peter passed away, he would be – he'll be much more um, remembered in his – once he's dead. Like I think while he's around, people take him for granted. Yeah, Let's put it yeah. like that. Mm. I yeah. think there's definitely a role for cantankerous people though. Yeah. <laughs> and then I guess another one that's kind of, kind of be a bit of a weird one, um, but I have to mention it, Judith Wright which just feeds into actually, I think she feeds into this one, which is John Williamson. Yeah. So my family are very, my family are very working class, especially my grandparents. Um, and I just have good childhood memories of John Williamson. And I think what that did, I definitely saw it in my grandfather who was a miner and then he worked at the brickwork. So very energy and he was never really, he grew up in Araluan, you know, Took, didn't really understand nature, took it for granted just because of where you grow up. It's so beautiful. It's just knock another tree down. It doesn't really matter. Look at all the trees. But I think I definitely, in his passing and talking about it with my mum, John Williamson, who was like this Aussie ocker, but was actually a conservationist, turned him around like to, oh, the bush is really valuable and you know, changed around someone. If I think it can change that and it's, it's a bit past, like it's, I know it's an older kind of reference, but it's quite interesting what I think he did that was under the radar. Mm. Well, it's country but music, right? Country it's the power music. of storytelling. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, like, I think that, you know, we've often spoken on the podcast and in between podcasts and Ryan and I are talking, like it's this, how do you shift the narrative and how do you get people engaged? You and create nostalgia. You, well, not only that, but you you tell those stories and yeah. the power of music and creativity is so yeah. important. Yeah, well, it's just I think um, some of John Williamson's songs for my grandfather were definitely that nostalgia thing of hard times I'd been through. It's like, you know, he might be talking about Victoria, but it was probably a similar story for country New South Wales and country outback yeah. Queensland. Like it's a bit of pretty you know, universally Australian experience for people that were in that position. So, yeah. Have you watched, um, just a quick plug for Justine Clark's um, Going Country show on ABC. Oh, my God, so good. Oh, no, I haven't. I'll have to yeah, watch okay, it. Yeah, you have to watch it because yeah. it's just talking about country music. It makes Australia it sound like I'm I'm not a big country music fan. Yeah, you fan. say that. No, I said that and she'll say that in the documentary, <laughs> in the in the show, that people will say they're not country music fans. And yeah. I said that to Ryan and Ryan went, yeah, and then you heard some songs and went, ah, yeah, I am. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know <laughs> what's I funny? I, I had the John Williamson on in lockdown and I was singing it to like my – I started playing it on the guitar for my 15-month-old daughter and she was like kind of loving it because she loves when I play the guitar anyway. But like I was getting very nostalgic around my grandfather and then 
then on my Spotify list it brought up Lee Kernigan and I and my wife's just like, you know all these songs, don't you? I was like, I do actually. I just it's kind of like, but and she's like, you don't like country though. I'm like, yeah, but these songs it, they're transcending do. country. Yeah. They're more about Australiana. Yeah, yeah. you know. You have to and watch this Lee Kernigan's kind of like a country rock version of John Williams. Yeah. In a way. It's all in yeah. the stories. Right? Yeah, it's in the yeah. story and it's in being relatable and mm. yeah. So yeah, you have to watch this show. Okay. It's, like, it's genius. Yeah, Julie loves country music now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I really think I caught the end of it the other night where they were talking about True Blue. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's that show, That's is that it? That's that show. Yeah, okay, yep. yeah. Yeah, because yep. that was getting me kind of like oh, welled up. It. Yeah, <laughs> no, because it was a beautiful song at the end. Yeah, it is. Oh, my God. Yeah. Anyway, okay, sorry. sorry we sorry. diverged. <laughs> um, what's your hot tip for being more environmentally friendly? Uh, hot tip is, especially around anything to do with construction, is invest in the best products you can. Yeah. It's really that simple because they're going to last longer and when things last longer – and it's more than that too. Like, you know, things that last longer uh, have a bigger process. They're engineered. So, you know, you're investing in engineering. If you invest in engineering, you're investing in R&D. If you invest in R&D, you're investing in people that are finding more interesting solutions. It's like so much wider than just the product. If you're buying something that's of a high quality, it might be Australian, American, Japanese, German made. They have better labor situations than a lot of other places have. It's not to dissuade against up and coming countries. They do some really super progressive things that are exciting too. But, you know, those products, they might down their chain invest somewhere over there as well that they've got more control of the investment so yeah yeah all right so we've come to the end of the podcast what's a final slogan or mantra or key message of yours that you'd like to leave our listeners with ah geez it's hard to water down or melt down into one little slogan isn't it um i guess it might come back full circle to what i said earlier on and this came from when i started my apprenticeship was um you know, you. This will be really cheesy. That's all right. We're up for cheese. They're usually the best. You don't. You don't <laughs> climb a mountain really by you know starting halfway up or you know without taking one step after the other. And that was really my mentor's thing. He's like, oh well, if you you do something, at least you're doing something. You know, when I first mentioned to my boss at the time, could we get different skips for different materials? He was kind of like, oh, that's going to take too long. And it was probably two years later, a skip rocked up and he's like, that's just for the masonry. I didn't even have to say anything ever again. Like it's, it's incremental steps. And if everyone's doing a little incremental step, it's better than people thinking, uh, what I do doesn't make a difference. Beautiful. Thank you, Dan. Local environment, heroes, saving the trees and the bees and doing it daily.